Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of Lockdown Law, my new podcast. I'm your host, Ananya, and in this series I'm hoping to introduce to some of you interesting myths and stories from all over the world, especially from branches of mythology that I feel are overlooked and also very interesting, such as traditional Aboriginal, Native American, Celtic, so on. In this week's episode, I'm going to talk about two of my favourite Indian myths, Samudramanthan, the churning of the ocean, and the story of Kali, and how she's influenced a wave of feminism. So, before I start, I'm just going to briefly explain the context of these stories. Goddess Kali is first referenced in the Vedas, which is a large body of religious texts. The Vedas are revelations that were seen by ancient sages after careful, intense meditation. Other popular stories that you might have heard of, such as Ganesh or Hanumanji, are discussed in one of two major Sanskrit epics, the Ramayana or the Mahabharata. The Ramayana narrates the life of Rama, the legendary prince, whilst the Mahabharata documents the war and struggle between two groups of cousins. The churning of the ocean is part of the Bhagavad Gita, which is a section in the Mahabharata. Now, this is a fun fact, and this actually blew my mind when I first found out, but the Mahabharata is actually roughly 10 times the length of the Iliad and the Odyssey combined, which is about 1.8 million words in total. Now, the story of the churning of the ocean. You might already be wondering how on earth someone churns the ocean and what that achieves, and I don't blame you. The logistics of this story are quite something, and it can be a bit difficult to get your head around, but just bear with, it's so worth it. Preparations were made to churn the ocean in the hopes of locating a nectar of immortality. On one side, we have the Asuras, which are the demons, and on the other side, you have the Devas, the gods. There was a massive war going on, and essentially the Asuras had taken over the wealth and strength of the gods, and so they pleaded with Lord Vishnu to, for help, who called for the ocean to be churned. Mount Mandara was to be used as the churning stick and the great serpent Vasuki as the rope. However, as soon as the churning began, everyone realised the mountain was not stable enough to stand on its own. So the Lord himself took the form of Kurma the tortoise to hold it stable. Now, with the mountain stable, the both, both sides, the Asuras and the Devas, continued churning, only to then realise a terrible poison threatening to annihilate the whole of creation was being released by the ocean. As you can probably imagine, this is not an ideal situation and just slightly inconvenient. However, Lord Shiva agreed to swallow the poison to save creation, which gave his throat its signature blue hue. With the poison swallowed and humanity safe, the churning once again continued. Many divine gifts emerged from the ocean, including, and not limited to, a heavenly cow, a seven-headed flying horse, and an elephant as white as snow. Just as the pitcher of nectar was coming out of the water, the greedy demons snatched it and ran away, rendering all of the gods' efforts useless. Fear not, however, for Lord Vishnu took the form of an exceedingly beautiful woman and convinced the demons to hand over the nectar. Vishnu arranged both the demons and the gods in two lines and started handing out the nectar, but his intention was always to hand it only to the gods. This next part of the story might be quite interesting for anybody who likes astrophysics. One of the demons, when he realised that Lord Vishnu wasn't going to hand the nectar to anyone except for the gods, 
had an interesting idea and disguised himself to try and receive it. But, alas, just as he was drinking it, Surya and, Chan- Surya and Chandra, the sun and the moon, realised his identity, to which Vishnu promptly beheaded him. However, anyone who has drunk the nectar cannot die, so to this day that demon's head chases the sun and moon to take his revenge, and when he succeeds there, there is an eclipse. I actually didn't know this part of the story, which was very interesting to find out whilst I was researching. Now, this is my second favourite Indian myth of all time, the first appearance of Goddess Kali. Just for a bit of background information, she is the goddess of death, time and destruction, and she's also a profound representation of love and she's a mother figure, which isn't that unusual because in those days female deities tended to have this interesting duality to them, whilst male gods were usually just single note. The setup to Kali's first appearance is that there is a war going on, which is again Asuras versus Devas. Two demons, known as Chunda and Munda, attempt to attack the goddess Durga. She responds with so much anger that her face turns dark resulting in Kali appearing from her forehead. This basically means that Kali is an avatar of Goddess Durga. Later in the same battle, Kali is tasked with killing the demon Raktabija, who had been fighting against other female deities. Although that he although he was wounded, each drop of his blood turned into a replica of the demon as soon as it hit the ground, resulting in an entire army of clones of him that basically just grew larger any time he was wounded. Kali defeats him by sucking his blood before it reaches the ground and it's his head that she holds in one of her hands that's the most common depiction of her and around her neck she wears the severed heads of his army. Now normally the story would end with the destruction of evil however there is a slight twist. The euphoria from winning this battle against evil causes Kali to go into a wild dance one that's so wild it nearly destroys the entire world. Her husband Shiva, also a god of destruction, is sent to calm her down, but she manages to overtake him and ends up having to lie down at her feet at the risk of being stomped on. When she sees him lying down at her feet, and she stops and the world is saved. At a surface glance, this myth perpetuates the image of Kali as ferocious and scary, depending on Shiva to calm her down from her rampage. But there is another way of looking at this myth. Looking beyond the surface, Kali as an expression of pure, natural, unadulterated power, unconcerned with the consequences of her actions and free from rationality. This, I think, is a more accurate way of looking at the myth and is a more accurate way of understanding its deeper meaning. My personal favourite thing about Kali is that she isn't the kind of deity that will easily be found sitting on a drawing room shelf or hanging from a wall with marigold garlands around her frame. There's something truly monstrous about her. She's terrifying and awe-inspiring all at once, commanding all attention to her wild and unruly self. Her power, the ferocity that led her to dance so wildly that she nearly unmade the world, only stopped by Shiva's total submission, was such a terrifying perspective of femininity and womanhood that her story was actually kept secret for a very long time. The goddess Kali exists as a symbol of Shakti, Shakti is the divine power that's feminine, yet still many of the meanings that are attributed to her role, 
the idea that she's bloodthirsty, angry, ferocious, scary, depends on the gaze that she is viewed with. In the context, in the context of a patriarchal society, that translates to a common belief that she's vicious and angry, when really she should just be viewed as a force of nature, like a typhoon or a fire or a flood, Carly just is. In my opinion, this is what makes her so beautiful. She's an icon that's inspired feminism in the West for decades. Although she's been seen in the past as a symbol of legitimate female anger by the patriarchy, what she stands for goes way beyond that. Her tongue is also actually the inspiration for the Rolling Stones logo, which is an interesting fact. So these two stories that I've discussed today, along with the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, they are all terms and they're all part of the religion of Hinduism, which is the main religion of India, where I'm from. People know bits and pieces of it, and I've definitely heard statements such as, oh, is that the religion where you guys worship cows and you can't eat beef, can you? And that's, that's true. In Hinduism, we don't eat beef because the cow is seen as a sacred animal. But it's also a lot more than that. My favourite thing about Hinduism, apart from the amazing festivals, has to be the mythology itself and the stories that I grew up on as a child. From a surface glance, you can look at these stories and you can think that's disconnected from what life is like today. And why do so many people still look at the scripture and, f and still relate to it? Well, the reason for that is because quite a lot of these stories, they're like Aesop's fables in a way. There's lessons to be learned, there's themes that run throughout that are still relevant today and affect all aspects of our life today, which I think is so interesting. So thank you everyone for tuning in for the first episode of my podcast and I really hope that this has helped broaden your minds and understand Hinduism and how these myths have a deeper meaning behind them and their ideas can still be relevant today. Stay tuned for the next episode where I'll be sitting down with a special guest and discussing her favourite Celtic myths. Have a lovely weekend!